0: I've been taught that a good sermon is very practical, you know, application. This is what you should do after the sermon. This one isn't really going to be necessarily that way. I'm going to ask you to try to understand the story, what this is about, and the purpose of it. And to do that, I just need to pray because I'm a little nervous. I think I bit off more than we all can chew. But we're going to give it a try. So let's just pray, let's bow, and then we'll jump into it. And I'm going to ask you to really listen because this is about the one we just sang to. Let's pray. God, we need your help. We need your help to see your son. We need your help to see your son and who he is. God, we need your help to see your son and who he's going to be in a, when he comes back. Help us, God, to let Scripture teach us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll open up to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Actually, 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to look at 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. It's a mirror passage. It kind of explains the same circumstances, but from a different perspective. But we're going to begin in 2 Samuel. We are in the middle of our study of glory days. Right here, it's God and the three famous kings of Israel. We have Saul, David, and Solomon. It's interesting, last week, Gil Thomas, our missionary, talked about the way a lot of times Hebrew poetry is written. It's called chi- chiastic poetry. We're caught in what I would call the chiastic climax today. Look at it like this. Before we started the book, Israel was in chaos. The book of Judges, chaos. God said, I've got to bring my people together, so he brought in this guy named Saul. So go ahead and hit it. The first one is, before we start this, Israel's in chaos. He brings in Saul to try to bring unity to the kingdom. Saul comes in, prideful guy, but Israel's starting, the 12 tribes are starting to get together. Then all of a sudden, this guy named David is the one who's really been anointed because Saul had problems. David is going to be crowned king over all 12 tribes. That's what we're going to talk about today. This is the height. This is the climax of the three kings. After David messes up after this. Then he has a son, Solomon. Solomon He has a a glorious reign, but he messes up. And his uh, mistakes, or his sin, causes Israel to spin back into chaos. So really, this is the chiastic climax, and that's what we're talking about today. David is going to be crowned king over Israel. Not only that, he's going to enter into the city of Jerusalem for the very first time. Jerusalem was not claimed yet until David took it over. And what we're going to see is when he comes into the kingdom, he comes in in triumph. He comes in dancing, singing, flutes, lyres, all of it. And so we're going to use the title of the sermon, the triumphal entry, part one. Many of you are like, well, this isn't the triumphal entry. I know what the triumphal entry is. It's Palm Sunday. When Jesus came in on a donkey and they sang hosannas. But what you're going to see is that's actually part two, part one is the fulfillment of God's original prophecy, which is actually a vision of his ultimate fulfillment, which is going to be part three of the triumphal entry. So today we're going to begin with the triumphal entry, part one. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're just going to read about four verses, and then we're going to jump into it. Verse 4 and 5, 2 Samuel 5. It says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So those 40 years are comprised of, first of all, taking over Judah and then the whole 12 tribes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Look at verse 9. David lived in a stronghold, and this is the city of Jerusalem. He took it over, lived in a stronghold and called it The city of David. It's his city, the king's city. David built the city all around from the Milo, inward to Milo. There's a lot of speculation. Some people think it's a giant tower. Some people think it's a grand palace that the Jebusites lived in. Whatever it is, at the time, they knew what it was, but we don't necessarily. It's a lot of speculation. Verse 10, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David's house. So people, so people were sent to David. They wanted to just build up his house and the kingdom. And in verse 12, it's really interesting. And David knew. David knew that the Lord had established him. David knew this isn't about him. David knew the Lord established him. Establish him king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David knew this was not about him. That may be the most important thing we learn today. Many times when you sit down and read the Bible, especially stories long ago where there's strange names like Hiram, and when we get into 1 Chronicles, there's going to be a ton of strange names, mighty men that we've never heard of, cities and states we've never heard of. It's easy to get bogged down and bored to tears, actually, when you read the Bible. Especially, the reason why I'm kind of scared about preaching this is, man, when I start reading some of this, you guys are going to check out like that. We're told when you give a sermon, give one point, make it interesting, tag it from a hundred different ways. We can't read this whole Bible stuff. It's too confusing. But I want you to make sense of this. You need to. You need... The best way to put it, to see the forest from the trees. If you don't, you won't understand the grandeur of this moment. What we're reading about today is the greatest event in all the history of Israel ever. It's what they look back to. It's what we look forward to, this event. We look forward to this event, not for David, but for his son. Son of David. It's going to do exactly the same thing. Thing. What we're talking about today is the fulfillment of thousands of years of God's sovereign planning, where it all came together. But like every grand story, it takes time with a lot of pieces and parts. And if you miss the larger picture, you won't understand the point of the pieces. Sometimes we just focus on the pieces without realizing how they fit into the larger story. So I want to show you, I want to begin, I want to give you an idea of what I'm trying to do. I'm going to tell you a grand story that many of you know. It's a story that I love, it's a story Jared loves, and some of you are like, I don't like that story, but you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And watch how the pieces come together. It's a grand story. All started in 1930. In 1930, a small, bookwormish man was grading papers for his university in Oxford, England. His name was J.R.R. Tolkien. He's just grading papers. An idea for a story came to him. It all began with this sentence. He just wrote down this sentence. This is amazing. It began with this sentence. In a hole, in the ground, lived a hobbit. That's all he wrote down. That's what he wrote down in 1930. Later, he said his purpose in wanting to write a book was to hold the attention of the reader, to amuse them, to delight them, and at times, maybe move them, hopefully, so he wrote, his first book was The Hobbit, and it was such a success, he followed it with a trilogy called The Lord of the Rings starting in 1947. I have the trilogy right here. He wrote three books, which was out about a hobbit, and his kin. This book was eventually published in 1955 in Britain, but later in America through different publishers. They were an instant hit, in fact, The versions in America were such a hit, they were spaced out every two years. In between the second and the third book, there was some doubt about one of the main characters, Frodo Baggins. Was he dead or alive? After the third book came out, and it was revealed that Frodo actually was alive, there were actually spray paintings of the walls of the subway in New York that said, Frodo lives! People love this story. About that same time, a 16-year-old boy started reading the books from New Zealand. Written in Oxford, went to America, all the way to New Zealand. His name was Peter Jackson. His dream was to become a movie maker, and in the back of his mind, he always wanted to produce these three books in movie form. Well, his dream came true in 1997, where he's given the right to produce and edit it for the next six years. He's single-minded at telling the story, and he used the best of his ability. Someone asked him, what's your purpose in making movies? Here's what he said. I want nothing more than have people say, I love your movie. Tolkien just wanted people to delight in his books. Jackson just wanted people to love his movies. Needless to say, people love them. Jared Doty notwithstanding. Probably the greatest lover of the trilogy you've ever met. If you have any questions, ask him. And Ken, by the way. Right, Rhonda? And Ken. And so in this story, what happens is together is woven in a fabric, a story that leads to a point. But there's all kind of heroes and heroines that are included in this mini. You might know many of these. Here's the go go ahead and hit it. You probably heard of Gandalf or Frodo or Aragorn or Erwin. And then you go to Legolas, second-tier characters, Gimli, Samwise, Eowyn, third-tier characters, Boromir, Galadriel, and of course Gollum, the greatest guy in the whole series. But I want you to know this. Listen closely. While each of these characters have individual significance, the greatness is determined by the author and the purpose of the story. You'll understand this in a second why I'm saying this. While each character has individual significance, their greatness is determined by the author. You could say it like this. The story isn't made for the character. The characters made for the renown of the author and the glory of the story. Never forget that. Because we do every day. I want you to notice something else. To tell a grand story, it takes a lot of people and a lot of parts. Watch the credits. Just, I'll give you about 30 seconds of the credits of this movie. Just watch this. So these are all the people that just had a part to play in this movie. And literally, this could go on, I think, for probably five minutes. Of all these people that are just making one movie that was written by one man for the glory of the story. You can pause that. Now, I could let that keep going and going and going. After all was said and done, the popularity of the story was phenomenal. Watch how much money this one story raised. I'll have up here three things. Go ahead and put it up there. Two point. She's got to get it. She's got a hard part making my story work, see? There's a lot of parts and pieces. But it raised $2.91 billion in revenue. And that's not including The Hobbit. A Hobbit is 4.82. That's a lot of money from one story. 17 Oscars, 11 in one movie, The Return of the King, and 150 million books sold, which I bought three of them. Jared bought probably 85 million of those books. But the point of this is, is this story is grand all because a man, a little man, sat down and wanted to tell you a story. We have... In my hand, a much grander story. The grandest story of them all. The story is incredible. This story includes you and me. We're included in this story. And this, the author who wrote this story is not a small little bookish man. The author of this story actually is, by that symbol, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they got together, and they decided to write a book for not just your delight, but for your salvation. And for his glory, his renown, his greatness. Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. I want you to go to Genesis. Because there's kind of like how J.R.R. Tolkien wrote something really small down. The storyline is found in Genesis chapter 12. I want you to notice it. Because this is the key to the story. And this storyline is woven through the whole Bible. Genesis chapter 12, God the Father is talking to a man called Abraham. His friend, actually. God calls him his friend. And he tells him this in Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 2 and 3. And this is not about a hobbit. This is about a Hebrew. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the storyline. And you're like, how is that the storyline? Well, go to Galatians. Genesis, now go to Galatians in the New Testament. It gives you more specificity about this storyline. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. It's very clear on what this story is all about. Galatians three fourteen. it says, So that in Christ Jesus, really we should begin with the word in, it's the beginning of a prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, which we just read, the blessing of Abraham is found in Christ Jesus, so that, or so it might come to the Gentiles. That means you and me. We are Gentiles. We are not members of the Hebrew nation. We are of the nations. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The promised spirit is God. The spirit is given to us. So what you could read it like this. In Christ Jesus, the blessing, the storyline of Abraham will be fulfilled in us and we, will, and we will participate in the life of God. He'll be given to us. But the key to this is the name Christ Jesus. Sometimes, if you're new to the church, it's just a name. It's a swear word. Something that I say when I'm really mad. No, no, no. Christ Jesus is the key to the whole storyline. you know what Christ means? Christ means anointed king. Anointed king. Jesus means God saves. So in other words, this blessing is going to come through an anointed king who's come to save us. That's the story. The specific blessing is packaged in a person who's a king, who's a descendant of Abraham. That's the point. It's not a hobbit, he's a Hebrew. Three times in the Bible we're going to find just such a king who's presented by God in a way where people are saying, He's coming to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, or God save us. Three times he's presented when they sing that. Each time there should be, there is rejoicing that comes along. The third time, there's going to be just as much weeping as rejoicing. But we're going to look at the first part because it's fulfilled in a guy by the name of David. The climax of the chaiistic. Kinghood. We're going to take a brief look at the second and third parts as well, but to do this, go to 2 Samuel again. Actually, I want you to go to 1 Chronicles. We're going to look at it from Chronicles' perspective. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles 11, and we are going to see how the promise that was given to Abraham that Galatians explained would be through a king to bring all the nations of the earth together, begins with David. This this coronation, the exaltation of God's king, is composed of three parts. First of all, you have where the king is crowned. Uh, 1 Chronicles 11, look at verses 1 and 3. Then all Israel gathered together, all of Israel, the twelve tribes, all of Abraham's family was gathered together at Ebron. They said, we are your bone and flesh. And the times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought us into Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you'll be prince over my people. So, verse 3, all the elders of Israel, came to the king at Hebron. And David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord. It was given by Samuel. Samuel was a prophet who said... David's going to unite all Israel because God told his story through prophets. He's bringing this all together. Second thing we see in verse 4 is not only does a king need to be crowned, is what happened in the first three verses here. Starting at verse 4, we find that he gets his city. A king needs a city, he needs a capital city in the same way that. We took on Washington, D.C. David takes on Jerusalem in order to unite the north and the south together. David chose the central location because I believe that all of the traverse Remember, David was running from Saul for a long time. He knew this region. And to him, Jerusalem was the place. Not only that, but in the Bible, what you're going to see is all of these mentions of Jerusalem. The very first time, Genesis, there's this guy by the name of Melchizedek. He's this king. He's also a priest, and he comes from the city of Salem. It's the first mention of Jerusalem. But watch what happens here in 4 through 12. And David and all of Israel went to Jerusalem. That is, Jabus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. So there's a tribe that was Canaanites that were inhabited there, but David knew God gave it to him. So verse 5, the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, You will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of Z- David. So whenever you hear the word Zion, it's the same thing as Jerusalem, it's the same thing as the city of David. David said, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be the chief and commander. Joab, of course Joab, we're going to learn more, he, was, he, took, he took the lead. So David lived in a the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David, and he built the city all around from the Milo in a complete circuit. Job repaired to rest the city, and David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord of hosts was with him. God was with him. This is God's doing. What's interesting is, do you know, you and I someday are going to be streaming to that same city. It says in Micah, Chapter 4, verse 2, all the nations of the world are going to come to their king and bow before him and give him praise. All the nations. At this time, it was just all the tribes of Israel. But this is a precursor, what's called a foreshadowing, to the really major event of the real king coming into the city. And then the ultimate thing is what was happening is this is the day God's glory was to be revealed. Revealed. What we have from chapter 11 all the way now to chapter 16, he's going to describe the events of this coronation. It's an amazing thing. It's amazing. But before we go there, I want you to go to chapter 13, because he's going if you look in your Bible, it talks about the mighty men. We'll talk about them in a second. It talks about how the mighty men joined David. Chapter 13, it talks about the ark. We're going to talk about that in a second. But first of all, I want you to look at verse 5. Verse 5 is key chapter 13, 1 Chronicles 13 verse 5. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerom. So in other words, what he's doing is he is assembling all of God's people all the way from Egypt, the Nile, up to the most northern part, kind of close to Euphrates, to bring them to the city of Jerusalem where he is going to really display God's glory. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Go back to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to look at verse 12 through 18. Abraham is having... Another confirmation from God. Remember, Abraham was the first guy God talked to, his friend. God's going to confirm it again, this blessing. And he does it in Genesis 15, but watch how specific he gets. Starting in verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So Abram's having a nightmarish kind of dream. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, There will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So he says, you're going to have, remember I promised you, kids, but they're going to go to this land that's not theirs. Egypt, they're going to be subject for 400 years. They're in slavery there. So he's telling him the prophecy. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, the plagues, and after that they shall come out with great possessions, which they did. As for you... You shall go to your fathers, and peace shall be reburied in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. Who destroyed the Amorites? I think David did. Anyhow, keep reading. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking, firepot, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So that torch is a symbol of God's promise. He's going to fulfill this promise. And then he says this in verse 18, To your offspring I give this land from where? The river of Egypt. Huh, and that's the same place where David gathered people from Nile to the great river, the river of Euphrates. That's the northern part. So what David knows is David understands this is the moment that God's promise, which was given 1,000, 1,500 years before this, is taking place, and I'm the fulfillment of that. He gets it. So what he does is he puts God's beauty and glory on display. If we go to 1 Chronicles, the first thing he does is he gathers the biggest army Israel ever saw in its history. That's why in chapter 10 and 12, it goes through all of these mighty men. And they were mighty. Like one guy could kill a 1,000 men with a spear. Another guy fought a lion in the snow. But if you look at 1 Chronicles 12, 1 Chronicles 12, 22, when he assembled them, Got them all ready? And, you, and I'm not going to read all these names. You can read all the names. These, like chapter 11 and 12, it's like the credits of the Lord of the Rings going through. It shows you all the people that were, took place for this day to happen. But if you look at verse 22, it says, From that day to day, for from day to day, men came to David to help him, until there was a great army, like an army of God. These guys were impressive. I've often heard sermons on the mighty men of God as if it's about the mighty men of God. It's not about the mighty men of God. It's about God bringing together this unbelievable statement that this is the fulfillment someday. In fact, believe it or not, right now God is assembling his army, his spiritual army. They're called saints. They're called saints. Another word we use this is the church. And uh, he is bringing together some of the greatest warriors and saints you've ever seen. When we are finally revealed, we are going to be wearing his glory. When we go to heaven, we are going to be clothed in his beauty. When we are finally revealed, I believe, right now, all of our stories are being chronicled, just as they were in Chronicles. A lot of the mighty men, their stories have been written down. I believe so are ours. Ours are being written down. I think when we're in heaven, they're going to be read. And we're going to be able to listen and we're going to be shocked at some of the amazing things you guys have done behind the scenes for the glory of God. Some of you have done amazing things. But again, it's not about us. Remember what I said about the Lord of the Rings. The story isn't made for the character. The character is made for the renown of the author and the glory of the story. This is about the one we just sang worthy. It's the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he, he who sits on the mercy seat. Which leads us into that section, the mercy seat, going to chapter 13. The mercy seat is the Ark of the Covenant. Remember we talked about the Ark of the Covenant? It's about the third sermon into this series. The Ark of the Covenant is that box that Indiana Jones captured. you remember that? That's where it's hidden today. I'm kidding about that. It's not hidden today. But the Ark of the Covenant is known as the Mercy Seat because between those two angels on the top of the box, God met with his people Israel. David wanted it to be with him. He wanted it in his city. So David brought the Ark. David wanted it there. He describes it in 1 Chronicles 15, 25-28. Mercy Seat was where God promised to both forgive and bless Israel. It's where they had to have the atoning sacrifice to forgive all the sins of Israel. So David made sure priests were there, a lot of priests. So what you have is in chapter 15, you'll read about all of these sons of Kohath and Meriah and Gershom. These are all priests, a lot of them, 200, 220, 120, a lot of priests carrying this ark. He also had a band with harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets. Musicians were there, singers were there. There was a conductor there that made sure it was done just right. And I'll bet you it was done. It was, I bet you it was done better than Kent City's high school band who practices two weeks just so that they do good on a marching band. I bet you this was spotless. Incredible. Everybody was outfitting in their royal robes to celebrate. And if you look in 1 Chronicles 15, 25, it gives a little bit of an idea what's happening. So David and the elders of Israel, those who had crowned him, and the commanders of the thousands, that's the mighty army went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. So they were excited about this. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. I'll explain that in a minute, because something bad happened. Verse 27, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen. We'll talk about this in a second. As also were the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers, and Shania, the leader of the music of the singers, so there's the music director, and David wore linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, thousands of them, to the city. Because this is a fulfillment of something God promised 1,000 to 2,000 years before. Sometimes we read this like, this is so boring. What? This day would have been incredible. It says there's trumpets, cymbals, horns, everything they could get their hands on. They just let it go. They let it go. It's interesting about trumpets. The third time he comes into the city, it begins with a trumpet sound. Anyhow, there's one more thing I just want to show you. So we have the army, we have the ark, and then we have God's amen, where everybody's in agreement to what's happening. It's sort of what Jared said up here. Amen means I agree with that. Look at verse chapter 16. Just let let the image hit you. Starting in verse 1, and they brought in the ark of God and set it aside inside the tent that David had pitched for it and they offered burnt offerings so they're starting to sacrifice. They're all gathered around. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Peace offerings is when they participate actually in it. And they distributed to all Israel, both men and women, a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, a cake or raisins. This is like a, this is, this is a banquet. They had, they had tents all over where you go over there and get some lamb meat, meet up. You know, I mean, it's great. Then he appointed some of the Levites and ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. A lot of praise and thanksgiving. It's kind of surprising that church people would always be happy. I don't, I don't understand that. Verse 5 Asaph was the chief, and second him was Zacharias, Jael, Shemariath, Jehael, Mattiah, Elibah, A lot of names. Asaph had the cymbals. So those of you who are complaining about the drums, careful. Careful. Amen. Verse 6, And Benaiah and Jehael were blow trumpets before the ark of the Lord. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord. So David appointed this and said, This is what we have to sing. This is actually Psalm, I think, 118, but take a look at it here in verse 8. Actually, it's Psalm 105. Verse 8, And listen to what they say. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds. This is what he's been putting together. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonderful works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he's done. His miracles. and The judgments he's uttered. O oh, offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he's the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant? What covenant? His promise to Abraham with that torch. Remember his covenant? The word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as is an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan. As your portion for your inheritance, when you were few in number, of little account and sojourners, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. So, what he's saying, remember when he gave that promise? We were nothing. Now look at us. Our king is crowned. Do you remember how, as a church, you don't think you have much? Wait till Jesus gets on the throne. If you watch how it ends, verse 34. Verse 32, let the sea roar and all that fills it, field exalt everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. This reminds me of when Jesus came in the second time. They said, will you tell those people to quit singing Hosanna? He goes, I can't. If I stop them, the rocks would cry out. Verse 34, we'll give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us O oh God of our salvation, Christ Jesus, Jesus, God save us, God saves, Hosanna. And gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your name. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting and everlasting. And all the people said, Amen. We agree. What a day this must have been. This is God's moment, no one else's. This is not even David's moment. This is not the mighty men's moment. This is not the band's moment or the priest's moment. It was all for God. And I have to tell you, when God finally gets the glory, everyone receives blessing. That's why we want to give him glory. God is the only being. When he receives glory, everyone else benefits. When man receives glory, no one else does. And so because of that, there's two lessons I think we need to learn and be very careful of, and we find it in 2 Samuel. Go back to 2 Samuel. I'll touch on these briefly. 2 Samuel, the first part is in chapter 6. It's when they brought the ark to Jerusalem. Starting in verse 1. So this is getting the ark prepared to bring it to Jerusalem. It was hidden because it was so dangerous. And the point of this is going to be this. This is lesson number one, and you'll see what I mean as I read it. Lesson number one, it's a warning, danger. Good intentions, good intentions done in the wrong way may incur God's wrath. I'll show you what I mean, starting in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. This is 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with them from the Judah to bring up the, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherub. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. They made this new cart for the ark, and they brought it up out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahoy, the sons of Abinadab, were driving this new cart. With well, the ark of God and Ahoy went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel, celebrating before the Lord, with songs and leers and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals, and when they came to the threshing floor naked, Uzz put, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the ox and stumbled. Okay, stop there a second. Two things are really wrong with this picture. If you ever read the law, specifically the Levitical ceremonial law, how you're supposed to deal with the ark, number one, you're supposed to carry it on a pole, not, car- not on a cart. The priests are supposed to put it on their shoulders and carry it on a pole. I heard one person say that the ark is really a representative of carrying the gospel of Christ. And it's not supposed to be done by any fancy means, but by individuals carrying it wherever they go. It's supposed to be carried on a pole. They made a cart. And a cart hit a rock by the threshing floor, probably hit a bump, and started going off. You can see the top of the cart probably leaned up and it started going down. And Uzzah, who wanted to do a good thing, touched it. Ooh, Exodus 25, 14. No, Numbers four, fifteen says, Do not touch the holy things lest you die. So look at verse 7 and 10. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. Wait, they want, didn't they want to do it? This is a good thing. Yeah, but it's done the wrong way. Made David mad for a while. Verse 8, and David was angry. He got afraid of the Lord. The point is, whose story is this? Who's writing this story? This is God's story. How dare we think we can do it our way? For instance... Christians are tampering with a very clear gospel. It says, believe in Christ to be saved. That's it. Don't change it. But people think they can add works. Yeah, but I'm a good guy. People think, why just Jesus? What about all these other gods? You know, they're all right. What if you're just a good per- Just be a good person. Because this story isn't about you. Because when you get saved by Christ alone, glory will only go to him. That's the point. Why do we think we're so arrogant as characters in the story that we can be the main show? It's such arrogance. Yeah, but what about the Hindus over there? It's, not, it's about Jesus. He made the earth. I think sometimes we take away his glory and we think we can change the story. It's terrible. I love how this part ends, though. Keep reading. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. So they said, man, I don't want to touch the ark. It's dangerous. So they put it in this priest's house, Obed-Edom. And listen to what happened in Obed's house. And the Lord blessed obed edom and all his household. Man, I'll bet you Odom was his, all of a sudden, hey, Odom, you got a new job today. We're going we're gonna to give you a sour increase of 100%. Your kids, they, are the, they won the sport. Everything went good for Ob. Everybody's like, man, this guy's blessed because he's got the ark. So David wondered, it, verse 12, and it was told to David, the Lord had blessed the house and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God to the city of David with rejoicing. Second lesson. We see it in verse 16. Here it is, lesson number two. When you see God at work, when you see God at work, learn to rejoice. Cynicism's killing us. We live in a cynical world where people will say, praise the Lord. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, right. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, so Saul's daughter, David's first wife, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him. She despi- she's cynical. She thinks he's doing this for himself. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent. David pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings, and when David had finished offering the burnt offering, the peace offerings, he blessed the people and distributed among the people, the whole multitude, both men and women, cakes of bread, meat, raisins. David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out. She's got her arms crossed. How the king of Israel arms. Meh, 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 meh. Who do you think you are? Yeah, you're probably all those maidservants love you. You're doing it for them. Oh, man, did that make David mad? David said to Michael, it was before the Lord I did this. And I'm going to celebrate to the Lord. There are many of you out there like that. You know that, uh, why is Jared singing? these stinking. Why does he want me to clap? She, we can't clap, we're bad. What, what is he doing? Why is, it, why is that music always so loud? Why do we sing these songs? Or I could take this off, you know. What, see, like, David took off the robe for the sake, because it was a hindrance. So he wore his undergarments, basically his linen. And he leaped. Could you imagine if a pastor leaped? Like, went, ooh, like that. That's weird. What's wrong with that guy? Rhonda's going, what is he doing up there? That's our pastor. David loved God. He didn't care. Why do we care so much about the cynics' criticism? We don't tell the gospel for the sheer fact because, oh man, they're not going to like me. They're not going to like me. It's embarrassing, you know. We wonder about all these hypocrites in this realm. Why are they here? A bunch of fake. Why are we so cynical? Look what happens to Michael in verse 23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Why? Because she uh, couldn't rejoice in God. Don't steal other people's joy. It's very dangerous. There's a grand, this was a grand moment in Israel's history. It was simply a preview to a greater day. The Bible actually has two more triumphal entries I've got them up here, I'll just touch on them real quick. In Matthew 23, we find the king entering, the real king, the real anointed one, entering his city of Jerusalem on a donkey. They were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was their chance to crown the king. All Israel's there at the Passover. But they traded the crown of gold for a crown of thorns. They didn't crown him with gold, they crowned him with thorns. Right before that, he looks over Jerusalem. He goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I ga- long to gather you. I wanted to gather my people as a hen, gather it your chicks, but you wouldn't come. You want always to be about yourself. You didn't want it, they didn't want a real king. So they killed him. They wanted to tell the story their way. And like Uzzah, they put their hands on the mercy seat. They shouldn't have touched him, but they did. And blood is on their hands. And like Michael, they only had contempt. For those who enjoy. But there is a part three coming. There's a part three coming. Because after they killed him, he rose again from the dead. And he is waiting for the right moment where he will once again be coming down into his city. Not on a donkey. He's not going to be wearing white undergarments anymore, but he's going to be in a stallion. White. Ready for war. Second Thessalonians says there's going to be angels with him. And we are going to marvel at him. But those who don't know the gospel, the good news. Ooh. Zacharias says on that day he will be king over all nations. Philippians said every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that this king is Lord. So, right now, we stand in between, we're like in the subway. We're standing in between part two and part three. And you have a choice. You can bow now by faith, accepting him as your king, or you can bow later. It's your choice. For those of you who want to bow now, I'm going to invite Jared and the band to come up here and to give us an opportunity as. His saints, his arrayed mighty army, spiritual army together to sing to the mercy seat for his glory. And for the purpose of amen, for the purpose saying we agree together in this.